0: Want to hear something amazing? So I was doing research for this episode, which takes on the state of our news media today. And when I asked an expert on media bias what he would do to deal with that problem, he said, support independent media, which are essential to a vibrant democracy. And why that's amazing is because this was going to be the episode where I ask you for the first time to support this independent medium, so feed two birds with one scone, keep reckonings going, and uh, you know, strengthen our democracy at patreon.com slash reckonings. That's P a t r e o n dot com slash reckonings. Thanks. And before we dive in. This episode has quite a bit of high-profile, conservative name-dropping. I'm not going to stop every time and explain who everyone is, but since the story starts with these two characters, I will say, Roger Ailes was the CEO of Fox News for 20 years. Megan Kelly was one of the top-rated anchors on Fox News during his tenure. And with that, here we go.
1: I remember going to the front desk and saying, "I'm here to have lunch with Roger Ailes," and they all look at me like, "Really?" Uh, and uh, but I, I was I was led up by a, you know security guard up to the uh, executive uh, a dining room, and uh, I got on the elevator. Megan Kelly was getting off, and I was just kind of bedad, you know, sort of uh, overwhelmed by all this. And um, most of the building's kind of ugly inside, just cubicles, but the executive. Uh, dining suite, you feel like you're in a fancy ship's cabin. It's, just, it's, it's very ornate. And all of a sudden, I hear all this noise coming down the hall, and it's, it's, it's Roger Ailes and his wife, Elizabeth. And then Roger and his wife and I sat down and had lunch. Roger ate fried chicken. I think I had some kind of fish. And I'm like, this is... This is this, I've reached the top here, you know? <laughs>
0: Joe Lindsley. While he was working on a conference to promote conservative thought on college campuses, he met Marty Singerman, Rupert Murdoch's first American employee, also known as his consigliere. Marty was impressed with Joe and said he had great plans for him. And so when Marty Singerman invited him to lunch with Roger Ailes, Joe jumped at the opportunity. I'm Stevie Lepp, and this is Reckonings.
1: And from the very first seconds, we're laughing and joking, and, uh, and there was no awkwardness at all. And Roger said he needed an editor-in-chief for a newspaper he bought on the side. You know, he said, you're a, ju- you're a journalist I here. I said, yes. And he said, and you're conservative. And I said, yes. And I started to quote something from the founding fathers and he's like, oh, that's great. You know, whatever. Let's, uh, let's, you know, let's, let's move on. You know, let's, let's talk about these newspapers. He had copies of the newspaper there and it, it was the widest newspaper in the world. I mean, it wider than the wall street journal ever used to be. And so I see this paper and I was like a little kid, like amazed, like, oh, this, this could be mine. So that's what I'm thinking. And meanwhile, he's telling me, uh, he bought the paper to, uh, you know, keep an eye on the local politicians. He, he was concerned they were going to be raising the property tax um, in Buncombe County, and he wanted to have a voice. and He figured the newspaper was the best way to do it. The next day, a town car was sent to pick me up and bring me to to Cold Spring. As long as I can remember, even as a little kid, I felt that I always was destined for some great and noble mission. I remember when I was in ninth grade, maybe, I, I told some friends at track practice, people were talking about what we want to do when we grow up. And I, I didn't really know, but I said, I guess run Fox News. And as I'm, you know, in the back seat of this town car, reading the newspaper, having some coffee, uh, driving down the FDR expressway, I'm like, I'm thinking, This is incredible, I have arrived.
0: Cold Spring is a village along the Hudson River, about an hour north of New York City. It's where Roger Ailes and his wife Elizabeth had their second home, and where the Putnam County paper Roger had just hired Joe to be the editor of was based. Roger wanted Joe to start immediately. He didn't have time to pack up his stuff or even find a home in Cold Spring. So the ale sent movers to his place in Westchester, Pennsylvania to pack for him, and for his first couple months, he lived in the pool house on the north end of their 9,000-square-foot estate. Two weeks into his new gig, on a Friday afternoon, Elizabeth invited Joe up to the main house for a drink.
1: I enter in, into the into the, the mansion, and, and, and as I enter into the living room, Roger's there to greet me, and we're overlooking the Hudson Valley. It's the most spectacular view. Um, it's windows all around, and you can, you can see the campus at West Point. You can see the, this, the, uh, the Hudson River, Constitution Island. I can see the village where the newspaper is. And so Roger and I sat looking at that view as the sun set, and, uh, and we just began talking. He talked to me about his day and week at Fox, and um, and he was just sort of venting to me about all of his frustrations with, with, with people at Fox. He said, you know, his job was to manage a circus. You know, he's basically a circus manager. And, uh, you know, all the, you know, managing the personalities and egos of people like um, Greta and Bill O'Reilly, some contributors thinking they're not getting enough airtime for whatever reason, you know, others making uh, salary demands. People backstabbing each other. Uh, Bill Riley was getting nervous because Glenn Beck's ratings were starting to approach his and he wanted Beck, you know, sort of silenced. At one point, uh, they introduced me to their their, uh, German shepherd um, who was uh, trained to kill pretty much. And uh, then they introduced me to their young son. Um, The kid had a glow in the dark item from school, and he wanted to show it off, and so they they wanted to go into the bathroom to look at it, and I'm just I stayed in my seat in the living room, and then they're like, "No, come with us," <laughs> and I was like, uh, "All right," and so I'm now standing in the dark bathroom with the chairman of Fox News and his wife and their kid, while the the killer dog is prowling outside. What Beth told me when she was encouraging me to come to the house for a drink, when she very explicitly said, "This is." This is not just about the newspapers. This is about you learning from Roger. You know, his, his, his son is 12 years old. You know, he needs somebody to give this knowledge to. You are being groomed for greater things. You need to spend as much time with Roger as possible. Very early on, Ailes called me, he would call me Ailes Jr. He said to my dad, he said, I've never met anyone more like me than Joe.
0: The protege part of the job was never made explicit. It kind of just happened. Even though formally Roger made Joe the editor of the newspaper he'd bought on the side, Informally, he took Joe under his wing at Fox. He started having Joe help write his speeches and accompany him on business trips and sit next to him at the head of the table at executive meetings. Roger also started leaning on Fox staff to make themselves available as dates for Joe and bringing him on family vacations and to church with them on Sundays. Things settled into a weekly rhythm.
1: I'd finish my newspaper for the week, uh, producing my paper, and Val, the uh, chauffeur, uh, would pick me up and bring me to Yankee Stadium, and I'd meet Roger, and, and, and usually it was uh, Geraldo and Bill O'Reilly and uh, Ainsley Earhart and uh, Henry Kissinger, and um, Roger would introduce me as the smartest conservative he knows. And actually, I mean, I like to watch the game. So very often uh, it was uh, like Henry Kissinger and Bill Riley and I sitting in the seats, you know, in the outside part of the box watching the game while everybody else was in the indoor lounge mingling and talking. Whether it was a game or a banquet dinner, which would happen now and then, you know, I'd often be in the city Thursday evenings. I wasn't really allowed to go out in the city on my own for security reasons, as Roger always said. And, and I had to go back in there, you know, uh, secure convoy to New Jersey. You know, I, I I'd stay at the ALC suburban house Thursday night, uh, and then on Friday morning, the driver and security man would pick us up and uh, and drive across the George Washington Bridge while Roger was on the uh, eight a.m. Uh, uh, conference call with the Fox uh, News executives, and uh, and I was just you know listening to that, and then. Um, we, we'd get to the office and we'd have a chef-prepared breakfast, even though we already had, had breakfast at the house.
0: Between the excess food and having no time to exercise, Joe started gaining weight. He didn't realize it at first, until people said he was starting to look like Roger. But what really put on the pounds was somewhat of a secure compound Joe gained access to at Fox.
1: In the inner sanctum of of, of executive offices, there there was the the secret Danish closet, which was a vault, perhaps the most secure part of Fox News. Uh, Is it um, is
0: for Danishes?
1: For Danishes. Um, And Uh uh, and through that door was this cavern of Danish glory. Um, Every day there were just trays of new Danishes uh, deployed on these uh, countertops. And um, only a handful of people had access to this, this vault of, 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 of uh, you know, pastries. And uh, I was one of them, which was a sign of like, God, I really arrived. We would sit and, uh, and you know, eat. Uh, we'd have the chef would bring breakfast, the chef would bring lunch. We'd eat danishes, we'd, we'd look at the wall of TV screens, you know, with MSNBC and NBC and, and uh, CNN. And Fox and we just stare at the screens and make comments upon what looked good and what didn't look good you know like oh she looks good on CNN maybe we should get over to Fox um, she's looking a little, a little big today maybe we got to get her off Fox and if Roger saw somebody he didn't like he'd call somebody up and say fix that um, in between uh, in between snacks um, and, and that was really that was most of the day during the 2 p.m. board meetings uh, a select variety of the Danishes would emerge from the vault and, and be put in, uh, in the conference room Roger would make fun of liberals and call people three-legged ballerinos or whatever we made fun of everyone you know the generic liberal who you know not even embodied in a person after these meetings I'd go back to Roger's office and 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 He would tell me that he said he would say all of his uh, executives, um, all my executives are a bunch of uh, a bunch of wusses, pretty much. He was surrounded by yes, men and yes, women. And that's the world he had created. Um, But I challenged him. I said, you know, why do you hire these people? Um, and, And I began to see maybe this is why he was seeking me out as a protege. Increasingly, we began to talk as though there was a a crisis looming for the nation and that perhaps civil war was imminent and that Obama was never going to leave office. You know, maybe he'd make the TSA into a secret army that would take over America. And especially we'd have, you know, we'd have these dinner gatherings at the House and people like Rush Limbaugh, Chris Christie, or Colorado would come for dinner. And we'd sit there and we'd talk about, you know, what are we going to do when Obama sends his troops after us? Sometimes we would sit in the there's a, there's a turret overlooking all of the Hudson Valley um, at the top of the house, and when a thunderstorm would come in, you could watch the storm roll like, roll up the Hudson, and we'd sit there in the dark uh, watching the storm. And uh, the would say like, "Oh, this is this storm. This is a metaphor for what's happening in America. We were being attacked uh, despite trying to save America." Every time I would leave the Ale's house, as I would leave, they would, they would wish me well and say, be careful, you know, make sure there's not a garbage truck following you to drive you off the road. At, at, at the same time, though, like, while feeling quite terrified, I felt very important. I felt like I was in, you know, the in a sense the scariest, but also the coolest, like, spy revolutionary movie you can imagine. When I would walk from my apartment to the newspaper office, with every step, you know, I felt like I was, you know, a commanding general, you know, right now on a secret mission, you know, preparing for the day of the great battles ahead, you know. And Roger would tell me, he said, you know, you— you know, he's like, you know, he was old, he's like, he told me that the nation was going to need me to to survive and, and to lead us out of these coming struggles. And he would ask me to, to change my coverage based on who was bad and who was good, and who needed to win and who needed to lose, and, and, and use headlines as weapons. I saw it as, okay, I, I'm a journalist and he's not. Um, you know, I didn't want to run these ideas by somebody, you know, to say, does this make sense? You know? Is this really are we really on the edge of you know, societal collapse and civil war? Is Obama really a tyrant? Or is he just a guy whose policies we disagree with? And there's no one I could run those ideas but I wasn't allowed to I had this idea of secrecy. I couldn't talk to people about that stuff. I definitely couldn't do it over the phone. I'd go and I would just look at the Hudson. And I'd be reminded of the importance uh, of my mission. And that would kind of, okay, Iron Man, pull together. Don't think about these stupid questions, you know. and, And forge ahead.
0: But back to those dinner parties for a sec. Think about it. They were talking among friends the same way you would at an intimate dinner party. Which suggests that Roger and Rush and Joe and whoever else was sitting at the table believed what they were saying, that America was under attack and that they needed to save it. And they acted on that belief, in small ways, like tightening security at the office, and in big ways, like giving play to the idea of birtherism, on the most watched cable news network in the country. And that belief seemed to be confirmed by everything they saw. Cold Springs liberals were not happy about Roger Ailes' acquisition of their local paper. So they launched a rival paper and poached sympathetic members of Joe's staff, which Joe and Roger saw as part of the great battle against them. So to shore up their defenses, they hired some new staff including Joe's sister, Laura, for a summer internship. On Laura's last night in Cold Spring, she asked to have dinner alone with Joe. They went to a local spot called Whistling Willies.
1: There was a little tavern on, on the main street in Cold Spring. We were sitting outside, and it was a pleasant summer evening. Uh, we were, uh, Laura was having cider, I was having a beer, and... Um, um she says i just want you to think about the way you guys eat she said it's disgusting um uh she said just think about the way you guys eat and you, you sit there in your dining room overlooking the world and you stuff yourself with food and and, and you sit there and you, and you talk about people negatively about everyone and, and, and she said, that, that's so much of what your life is. And just think about that. I was angry at her for even criticizing any aspect of, of my life and the world of Roger Ailes. Um, but with such an idea implanted, uh, you know, every mealtime subsequently became all, uh, an occasion for questioning the whole enterprise.
0: Joe still worried about Obama's secret army and the rival newspaper and the looming battles ahead. But he also started worrying about how he and Roger criticized people and how Roger would ask him to change his coverage based on who was good and who was evil and about how he felt suffocated by what he increasingly saw as Roger's paranoia. Things came to a head with an article in The New Yorker. They were reporting on Roger's purchase of the Putnam County paper and had interviewed Joe as part of the piece.
1: After the interview, Roger calls me and says, You know, we need to do damage control in this interview. It sounds like maybe you talk too much. And and you know, and he was he was he was just he was really afraid uh, that, that this article is gonna, you know, be a horrible hit piece. Well, I, I, I said, this is ridiculous in my mind, and I, I decided to challenge Mr. Ailes. I said, do you believe in the commandment, thou shalt not lie? And he said, oh, of course, yeah. I said, well, if Mr. Murdoch asked you to lie, would you lie? And then he said, oh, of course. And he's he's like, well, you know, tell me you've never lied. I said, no, I have lied. And I said, I've even lied on your behalf, I think. But I said, I'm done with it. And, and, and all of a sudden he belts out what is truth. He said, you know, we made you, you know, you're nothing, you're you're nothing without us. And he's like, I, he's like, I can destroy you. I can destroy your facts with my narratives. He said, there are no facts. And then from threat mode, he goes into a nice, you know, sort of, You know friend mode he's like you know we need you he's like we need you man like and uh and 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 then the conversation ended uh hey what are you doing for dinner and i said i'm i'm I'm, i got plans i'm on my own
0: so joe started to taste what it was like to be on the opposite side of the battle from the ales roger seemed to trust him less and beth started to micromanage him more They had security cameras installed at the office, and sometimes he felt like they were having him followed. It got to the point where he called for a meeting with Roger and Beth.
1: Very notably, they wanted to meet at the office, not at the house. So we had now reached a level of, you know, a level of, uh, it was no longer this friendly environment. And we meet in the Sherlock Holmes room. Uh, and I, I sit down, and then I just said, you know, I've had enough of this. I said, according by your own logic, you know, you have the President of the United States after you, and you're sitting around demeaning, you know, innocent people. You can't treat people like garbage. Uh, you, you can't, uh, you know, just kind of crap all over people. But then I just said, um, I called for this meeting to announce that I'm resigning. When I said those words, I resigned. I felt so free. And Roger looked crestfallen. I mean, just absolutely sad. And he's like, do you think I've lived a bad life? And I said, that's for you to consider. And um, I got in my Jeep and drove. That was it. A few weeks before in St. Patrick's Day. i have been in an Irish pub on 2nd Avenue and this old man had been singing the song. It was called I Will Go. You know, I was like, oh, that was a great song. I downloaded it. I put it on repeat. It's a Scottish war song. The drums are beating. I rolled down my windows. And it was like, this was the, this was, seemed to be the end of the movie. And I'm fleeing down uh, the same road that Benedict Arnold fled, and I I crossed the Bear Mountain Bridge to freedom.
0: Benedict Arnold was a general in the Revolutionary War, who initially fought for America, but then defected to the British Army. In the U.S., his name is synonymous with treason. After Joe fled, the Ailes considered him a traitor, Roger tried to blackball him in Washington media circles and threatened him with lawsuits and even tried to dig up dirt on his dad's business. Joe began searching for an identity separate from Ailes Jr. After two years under Roger's thumb, he started hanging out with people his age again and going to music shows eating better, and exercising. He lost 50 pounds in two months, and for an entire year banned himself from having strong opinions on anything, including a favorite color. Joe needed a break from the world of news, so he started managing a Celtic rock band. He went on tour with them to Ireland, And at one point while there, he was driving around getting things ready for their big show that night.
1: I'm running around trying to do a million things. I calculated that I was exactly in the middle between these two villages. I'm on this beautiful coastal cliffside road. And all of a sudden, I I didn't know where I was. Everything just faded. And and I didn't know what anything was. If you asked me my name, I could say it. I knew what a car was, but there's like this existential dread that 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 and, and I, I could find nothing to latch onto so i stopped the car i didn't know how to i couldn't go on and i'm just staring looking at at, at the sea and i i didn't, i didn't i became terrified i said i don't know how how am i going to get out of this so i was exactly in the middle of nowhere And there was a little church up on the hill there, and I go in the church saying, maybe that'll give me some comfort. And, and it was even worse. I let out of this great yell in the church. At that point, I had never taken the time to examine why it was that Ailes said he had never met anyone more like him than me. All day, you can surround yourself with your enemies, perceive they're real, and, and that keeps you occupied. Everything is, a, is an occasion for a, a crisis, a confrontation, an argument. We could have sat around and said, okay, we don't like Obama's policies. We think they're very bad. But instead, Obama it was, uh, we thought he was evil and conniving and was going to become a tyrant who would never give up power. And and, 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 and and it made us feel like heroes. It gave an importance to our lives. You know, I mean, everything was tinged by Oh, you know, the potential threats, even when Ailes and his family and I were at the Olive Garden, you know, which we enjoyed because it was all-you-can-eat breadsticks, uh, you know, we assumed that, you know, uh, Frank and Irma at the table next door might be listening to us, you know, to, to or might be assassins. My whole idea of journalism was, was couching confrontation. You know, everything was a was a battle between you know what we saw as good and what we saw as evil because that's how we saw the whole world. I knew, I knew there was something missing. You know, I, I knew that this that the course that Ailes and I were on was not, you know, I mean, it seemed glorious, but deep down we knew that there was there was this isolation and sadness. I mean, that's part of the reason why, you know. You make the president out to be, you know, this, you know, this sinister, you know, uh, figure out of a James Bond, you know, story, because you can focus on that rather than on your own unhappiness. And so you, you fill your life with this extra drama and activity, so you don't have to think about the other, or think about or address the unhappiness. That sadness, uh, it, become, it, it, it 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 has a power, you when you don't address it and just acknowledge it. I realized that this is the deepest way how Ailes and I were most alike. I felt very close to God in that moment when I just yelled. While it might seem sort of sacrilegious, that was my soul being somehow forcing its way into honesty. The next step is that I have to write this story. I need to write this truthfully, unvarnished.
0: Eventually, a French couple passed by and helped Joe get back to the band. But the armor had cracked. Joe needed to see himself honestly and go public with his story.
1: I wrote this book because it poured forth. And as I began to write, I began to open up. I began to be honest about, uh, you know, the turmoil within. I began to talk about some of the struggles and the loneliness and isolation. Well, I began to realize what it meant to be honest. I realized I wanted, I wanted this to be something that Roger Ailes read. I wanted him to read this book. I wanted him to hear my story and and, and, and to realize why I left and and hope that it would offer him some solace and maybe some, uh, his own awakening or reckoning. The night that I finished uh, my final draft, you know, the draft and I'm like, this is it, I've got it. I went out and celebrated some friends in New Orleans and and I woke up uh, to a flurry of text messages at 6 a.m. saying that Roger Ailes was dead.
0: Do you think he would have read the book?
1: I, I think very secretly, yes, he would have.
0: How do you think he would have reacted?
1: Well, I think he um, – I go back to uh, the conversation I had the day that he was on the front page of the New York Times. New York Times had a front page story about Roger and um, it was a big piece. I think they had three or four writers on it. And um, there were people close to Rupert Murdoch who uh, spoke poorly of Ailes in the piece, you know, painting him as paranoid and crazy. And, and, and that really got to him. It got to him. It got under his skin and, and it made him, it kind of weakened him. That day, I mean, we had kind of a war room, a situation room, in his library, and it was just it was Roger and me, and we had various people calling in um, on how to respond to that article, and uh, it was a strange day, and it was, it was very very somber. We were sitting there uh, eating pizza and having a little scotch, and and, and he started to open up and, and to confide in me about you know his own his own sadnesses, but but I was not capable. At that time of having that type of conversation, I thought oh, that's weird. So I was like, "No, everything's fine. You're great. You're better than these people. Don't worry. But, you know, it's sort of that superficial. You know, go get him. You're gonna be okay." And and so that moment was lost for him to kind of open up to to a friend. I I didn't I didn't you know let him have that moment uh, to to share um, what he was trying to say. Um, you know, he was looking for a friend he could talk to. And, and I didn't know how to be a friend then and how to communicate with that.
0: What do you wish you would have said?
1: I think just to, to listen, to shut up, and uh, instead of saying, oh, everything's fine, you know, stop, you know, stop worrying about it. you're going to be okay. Uh, you know, you lived a great life. To, to say, uh, yeah, you know, tell, I'm here to listen. Tell, tell me some stories. I think. Had that conversation gone otherwise, maybe things would have shook out quite differently. Who knows? I mean, maybe that's just kind of a dream, you know? But maybe we would have began to have the transformation, you know, and maybe we could have changed uh, the way things were at Fox. Um, Who knows how that conversation, uh, you know, had I been willing to listen to his story, um, who knows what the effect could have been.
0: These days, there's a lot of talk about post-truth and fake news. Our democracy is struggling in a moment where the honest facts have less influence over public opinion. But there's another kind of honesty that's implicated here, and that is honesty with oneself. Roger and Joe were not honest with themselves about their feelings of isolation and sadness. They used conspiracies and criticisms and copious quantities of carbohydrates to avoid being honest with themselves. If they had just been able to see truths about themselves, would they have been less inclined to fabricate lies about the world? Joe says Roger was almost scared of the truth, which is ironic and devastating for someone with so much power over it. But that might also be why he took Joe on as a protege, to have someone with similar inclinations who could act as a mirror. And that might be the biggest thing Joe Lindsay has to reckon with, not holding up a mirror to Roger Ailes. And his biggest transformation might be learning to hold up a mirror to himself, Actually, he kept referring to our interview as the kind of conversation he never would have been able to have even a couple years ago.
1: When I was in the world of ales and even before that, I, I, I didn't know that these conversations were possible. I didn't really know that you could examine the soul at this level. When I was on my high horse, you know, always crusading, there's always a problem to fix. There's always a point to be made. There's always some some dummy to convince of the brilliance of your own arguments. You, you, you live like that. You're not going to be very joyful. Uh, you know, I still have to wrestle with, with, with some demons, but I, I, I can, uh, you know, I can smile now, you know, I find happiness in life. I don't really hold uh, angry political positions on anything. You know, surely we have to pay attention to national politics and things are, can be very dire and maybe they are but we need to live with the people around us and, and live our lives and turn off the television more often and turn off the news and, 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 and you know use that time instead to begin talking like humans to get to know each other and get to know our neighbors I think that's the resistance that we need how many people invite Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow into their living rooms more often than they invite their neighbors
0: went public with his story for the first time this past September, in a Politico article that announced the release of his memoir. I just gave you a super simplified version, so for much more detail, check his memoir out. It's called Fake News True Story. He also just signed a deal to tell his story in an upcoming Showtime miniseries about Roger Ailes. It will be called secure and hold the last days of Roger Ailes. In the future, Joe would love to go back into journalism in a different way. He dreams of launching a one-page newspaper in his city of New Orleans, where one side of the paper features a local investigative story, and the other side features a local positive story. And speaking of doing journalism in a different way... The idea of paying for it is kind of different, right? Especially when you can get it for free. So let's do something different. If you're enjoying the show, please help keep it going. Head to patreon.com/reckonings. Again, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com/reckonings. Big thanks go to. Helena Groot, Vika Aronson, Phil Groman, Patricia Adler, Jim Narakis at FAIR, Joshua Benton at the Nieman Journalism Lab, Kelly McBride at the Pointer Institute, and to you for listening all the way to the end. There's a little something waiting for you on the other side of the credits, so stick around. I'm Stevie Lepp, and you've been listening to Reckonings. What was it like? A key? No,
1: the passcode. I think I can say the passcode because. Okay,
0: what is the passcode to the fox Danish? One,
1: two, three, four. Okay. <laughs>
0: wow. Do you think the passcode is still one, two, three, four?
1: I don't know. Probably once they hear your podcast, maybe they'll, they'll change
0: it. Uh, but they'll change it to five, six, seven, eight.
1: Yeah, probably. <laughs> the next logical one.